Hey guys, I just want to let you know about an amazing company, an amazing product that we use in our home every day. The company is Balish Woodwork. It is owned by my friend Kurt Balish. He makes homemade woodworks. And for my wife, which you know I love and adore, last Mother's Day, I got her a homemade cutting board made by Kurt and is the only cutting board that we will use in our home. So if you guys love homemade woodwork and you would love to make a piece, maybe for your wife, maybe a chessboard, maybe something special for your home, definitely check out ballishwoodworks.com. Tell them that Richard and Vertical Momentum sent you guys. Have an amazing day. Remember, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. So sorry about that, brother. So we're doing a part two. So talk to, talk to us. Did it finally catch up with you? Yeah. So um, so after they refiled on that that second case, um, you know, my girlfriend uh, had checked into rehab. I took her down to a, a rehab. Um, it, um, and of course I didn't stop. And, uh, eventually that, you know, I, I reposted that bill a second time and that's when I ran, I was like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not even going to deal with this. And, uh, and so I was staying at a, a motel in, uh, Anaheim. Um, and I remember, I remember going to sleep one night and, uh, woke up the next morning, got real high and, uh, or as high as I could, I wasn't really getting high anymore, but, um, what I felt like was just giving me whatever to, to function. And I remember sitting down at the table and I'm looking, okay, at my room, I got to move today. That's what I kept thinking. I need to move to another place. And, uh, and after I was sitting there like 10 minutes, I, I heard a lot of, uh, you know, key in the door, door flies open and it was uh, detective Moyigan. And so they found me, located me, took me back to jail. And at this point in time, I, and I remember, you know, I'm driving, you know, to jail in like a Porsche, you know, with the undercover. And I remember telling the guy, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm tired. I'm, you know? And, uh, and I was, I felt committed to it, you know, and they, I get back, I get into jail. Eventually when I get a bed, I slept again for days. And once I woke up, um, the suffering kicked in, you know, it's what I was, the cravings are the true suffering of the addict. And I had cravings so immense, so powerful. Um, you know, I could taste it. I could feel it. I mean, it was just, I, you know, I felt like I, I wasn't going to survive, you know, getting off of it. I mean, it was just brutal. And, um, and of course I, you know, my bail, my bail guy wasn't going to post bail this time unless I had money, a thousand bucks, I think, of course I didn't have anything. And so I remember calling my dad my dad answers and I asked him if I could borrow a thousand bucks. And he says, you know what? I'm glad you're there. At least I know you're safe. And, uh, and so I was stuck. Um, I was stuck to deal with it. It was brutal. I mean, I, it was so powerful and that's the thing I don't know. Like, you know, some of the people that have not been through the, you know, the, you know, drug, drugs are fun when you choose to do them, when you have to do them, they're not fun anymore you know, and that's you know, what it, I was just about to say that. Cause I, I was thinking back, you know, to my own situation and, you know, 
people think that drug addicts, they just, they like to get high. But eventually, you know, they'll, like an addict will spend an hour or two getting high, but spending 22 hours regretting getting high. Oh, yeah. And it's just, a, it's just that, and it, and it's like a cycle. And yeah. You I you off, know, No, you can't get off. You can't get off of that cycle. You know, yeah, one of my, you know, my biggest fight, you know, again, like we talk about, like, you know, fighting that stigma, right. The misinformation and, you know, m- the people that you see out there that are, you know, homeless or suffering, you know, they're using, you know, that, that they're on drugs. They, the good majority of them don't want to be on it. Um, you know, you go talk to these people and they hate life, you know, everything about it, but it, you know, when you, when you study the part of the brain that gets, you know, really impacted is the, you know, what they call the nucleus accumbens. It's the pleasure part, the sur- which is the survival part of the brain, you know, just the same part of the brain that, that, you know, kicks in that says, you know, when you're extremely thirsty, right. Two things, obviously that we need to survive are food and water. Right. And if you're, you know, uh, it's really dehydrated and you need water. That's the part of the brain that's kicking in. That's the cravings, right? You know, if you're, if you are starving to death, right? I mean, to a point to where, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, people will kill people to eat people. I mean, we've seen this in stories, you know, of, uh, heard, heard this in stories, you know, of, um, you know, that part of the brain kicks in, there's no consciousness there, you know, there's no cognitive thought, it's just instinct. And, uh, and that's the same part of the brain, you know, that's being affected. Um, And that's where, you know, I mean, for all the people out there that have not gotten into, you know, the drugs or things like that, you know, or the people that think they're invincible, or it's not going to happen to me. um, That's not the case, you know, because, uh, you know, anybody that goes that path, it, it it's going to happen to you. Dependency. I mean, that's the, you know, if you believe in the disease concept or not, you know, the reality being is that, you know, we all start at what's called a state of equilibrium, right? This balance. And then you throw drugs into the mix. Drugs alter the functioning of our central nervous system, right? There's that, you know, uh, adaptation level theory, right? Anytime that you do something over an extended period of time, your body adapts to where it will no longer get pleasure from it. And the adaption occurs to protect yourself. It needs to change, right? It's called neuroplasticity. So there has to be this alteration, right? And what it does is it creates allostasis. So we go from homeostasis to allostasis, which is basically the new norm, you know? And, uh, you know, you look at alcohol, alcohol is, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, alcohol is by far the most dangerous drug out there. Um, kills more people every year than all illicit drugs combined. And, um, and even today, you know, even with, with everything going on, but um, alcohol is so dangerous because of the neurotransmitter that it affects, it affects GABA, right? GABA is the most abundant inhibitory neurotransmitter. So when you're doing something that is becoming a part of that system, Right. That's the part that's the, the neurotransmitters that regulate and control your brain. They keep you know, they believe epileptics lack a certain amount of GABA. Yeah. And, and also, you know, like I said, I've been not only was I an addict for, you know, but I was in the health and fitness industry for so many years. Yeah. And it was amazing how many like if, you, if anybody if ever is listening to this, just go to an AA meeting 
even if it's just an open meeting and watch how many people are sucking down coffee and donuts and sugar because you're you're you know your mind uses the sugar the same way as it did the alcohol it just another form of it so go to an AA meeting and you'll see people sucking down coffee eating cake and candy gaining 30 40 pounds after they get clean and smoking puffing down cigarettes yeah, because, you know, their body starts craving, instead of craving the alcohol, it starts craving a lot of the sugar, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, it, and that is literally what alcohol breaks down to is sugar, you know? Um, and, and and the reality is, is, I mean, sugar, you know, is um, is our brain's energy. You know, I mean, it is. But obviously, you know, the types of sugar <laughs> that you eat and the amount of sugar uh, can obviously cause lots of problems. But yeah. And so that, I mean, and that's the, that's the thing. And, and, the, and the power behind addiction is so intense. Um, you know, and you know, it's, it's, you know, my book, you know, I start every chapter with a poem, right. And I kind of did it for, you know, creativity purposes. I, I, that's one thing I'm really big on is, you know, if we can be creative, the more we can use our mind, you know, our mind is like any muscle out there. Right. And the, damage that you have done to your brain can be very intense. Um, and, um, and so, you know, your brain needs an opportunity to heal. The more you work it out, the better it is. And creativity, I think, is a great way. You know, you can do logic problems. You can do, you know, different things that use your brain. And so I kind of utilize that, you know, um, as an example. And, and it's interesting, the, the first poem that I put, you know, it's, it says, I'm proud that I overcame and I sit on solid ground. The glimpse of faith I saw pulled me to the mound. Let me share my story since we are much the same. The first step towards your future is to stop and take the blame. And, uh, and that was that, you know, and that was the biggest part for me. You know, I got. So talk to us, you know, take us back to that jail cell and, you know, your body, because people don't realize when you're addicted to certain, certain, a lot of drugs, even alcohol, your body goes through DTs, you know, delirious tremor. And all that good stuff. And so how long were you in that state? Not the state state, but in the, the state of DTs. Well, and- yeah, our, our, uh, meth doesn't do, create DTs. That's the alcohol and stuff, you know. Okay. Um, but the, you know, withdrawal. And a lot of people think like, oh, yeah, withdrawal for meth or coke or things like that aren't that bad. And there are different withdrawal symptoms that people experience. You know, uh, heroin withdrawal is painful it won't kill you. Alcohol withdrawal, if it's not done right, can kill you, right? Um, and sedative hypnotic. Methamphetamine withdrawal won't kill you. But there's a there's a big part of, of what happens with meth withdrawal that a lot of people aren't really fully aware of, and it's the depression. Um, the, because of the neurotransmitters you're affecting, dopamine, epinephrine, which is your physical, you know, like, like uh, adrenaline, norepinephrine, which is mental energy and serotonin. Serotonin is our emotional stability within our limbic system. When, so when you have meth that is affecting that and it gets to a point to where it requires the methamphetamine to stimulate the serotonin or to, you know, provide more of it and you don't have that. Um, it's, uh, you, you fall into, um, a major depression. I mean, major depression, uh, almost to, uh, almost to a suicidal point where you see no hope, you see no light at the end of the tunnel. 
Um, and it, and, and of course being in custody and feeling that is, is not, is not easy. You know, it's tough. And, uh, and it was bad. I mean, it really was bad and slept, I slept as much as I could. Um, again, one of the symptoms of depression is you sleep a lot. And, uh, and I tried to sleep, you know, just as much as I could. I, I you know, gained some serious weight while you were in jail. Yeah, I did. Well, um, I, I definitely gained quite a bit of, of weight. Um, I probably gained maybe 40 pounds, you know, um, but but then I'm only still up to 170. Right. Um, now I have I naturally I have a very fast metabolism. And so I've never been overweight, you know, um, I think I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. It, it's it's really um I mean, it, I really do, you know, and that was, and that's even the more dangerous part is you throw meth into that and, and, you know, my nutrition level just, just it goes away. But I've always had this, you know, I mean, I think the the heaviest I've ever been was 200 pounds, right? And, and six, four, I mean, that's, you know, but normally uh, for most of my life, um, or not, I mean, it, off of meth, anytime I was not using it, um, I usually sat around 190, you know, now, did you first starting, did you have to go to court reporting meetings or did you go while you were in jail just to do something? To AA meetings or 12 step meetings? Yep. Yeah, no, I, I um, you know, at, at first, um, you know, I, again, I've been to 12 step meetings all throughout my life periodically in and out, you know, types of thing. Cause you know, I'd be forced to, you know, again, starting at 16. And so I really knew the 12 step program, but it was, you know, and I wasn't, I was a, I was a, a full on, um, I was one of those like atheists, not like, um, this whole second and third step, you know, um, you know, coming to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, you know, or, or making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understand them. And I hated that word God, you know, I hated that part. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that that sort of are stuck on that concept, too. I did go to 12 step meetings uh, while I was in there strictly just because I wanted to get out of my cell uh, whenever I had an opportunity. And uh, but then I was also court ordered to six months of treatment when I got out of jail. So I, I had to do uh, and I got a miracle. But here and here's what's interesting. OK, so when I. Um, when I got in there and I just, I, I eventually probably maybe after a month and a half, two months, maybe about two months of being in there, I decided that I got to a place to where, okay, the cravings were not, you know, beating me up anymore. Uh, they were still there, but they weren't, you know, they were a little more manageable. I decided that I wanted to change. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want a different life. I don't want to get out of here and do what I always did when I got out of custody. And so <clears throat> I, um, I decided that I was going to change. And one of the things that I came up with was I need to figure out this whole God thing. And so I put in a request to see a pastor and, um, and uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a week later, they finally send me over and they don't have, a, they didn't have a pastor, but they had a priest. And so I get in with this priest and I, I still remember this conversation so well. I, I remember, you know, and literally I look at him and I say, you know what? I don't know why can't I believe in God? I said, I don't believe in God. And I said, I don't know why I can't. You know, I see all these people out here that have this blind faith, right? They have this 
faith in something. Why can't I have that? Right. And he looks at me and he goes, maybe you're asking the wrong question. Right? And I was thinking, okay. And we, and he, he kind of continued on with something. And I, and I was like, you know, what is the right question? And he says, exactly. I'm thinking like, what's this guy talking about? Right. And so he, he then looks at me and he goes, all right, here's what we're going to do. Right. Is I want you to, I want you to pray with me. All I want you to do is just think what I'm saying as if you're, you know, stating what it is that I'm saying. And so he, he starts on and he goes, God, I don't believe in you. But if you are there, help me find you. Right? And I thought, wow, actually, that's kind of a cool, that was cool, right? That's kind of exactly what, <laughs> what I wanted to say, probably. And, uh, and so, you know, he kind of talked about, you know, that God will be the one that will show you. And, you know, and I'm still just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know. So I go back to the cell I was in and I was housed in one of the cells. It was D22, uh, which way at the top of the, the uh, jail building. And this was a cell that literally every night they, there were fights. Uh, the deputies come running. They'd be shooting those tear gas balls in the cell. It was one of those 60-man dorms. And, uh, and I hate it. I mean, it was brutal. I mean, I'm trying to sleep and, and I'd literally wake up almost every night my eyes are just burning because of that tear gas. And, uh, and so we had that, we had that. And the next day they moved me, right? So they moved me to another cell, um, or another mod in there. And it was C11. This was a little bit further down. And this ended up being a worker's tank. And so they, um, they ended up putting me in a job at the library. And so I, I go there, you know, we're kind of pull, you pull out like all the crap out of newspapers and you take them all to the different mods and deliver newspapers. And you, know, you kind of can bring books around, you know, for people. And I had an opportunity to obviously take books that I needed. And so I actually grabbed the Bible, <laughs> which was for me, was very interesting. And, and the one, the one, and you know, I didn't see that bright light burning bush, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But probably one of the biggest things that happened first was I actually had a really intense interest in learning about it, which was something that I'd never cared about before. And all of a sudden I have an interest. And so I got the Bible and uh, throughout my jail time, I read the entire Bible front to back. Now, how long were you in jail? 28. Hmm? How old? How long were you in jail? Oh, how long? I was uh, I was in almost a year. So now I was, looking, I was looking at 15 years. And they got you got a year? Yeah. So then that was another I, I define as a miracle, right? Um, because I was still going to court when I'd met this uh met this priest, and you know, he made this prayer. And um and so we go back so they, the DA had cut the 15 down to seven. That's what he wanted to give me. It was seven years. And, um, and then we went to court one day and my, my attorney 
says, hey, check this out. So I've talked to the DA and I've talked to the judge and and they're, they'll agree to three years in prison, right? And so, and I was like, cool. I'm like, let's, I'll, good, I'll sign on it. County really sucks. You know, getting into the state is, is much better because you got, you know, more room. You go outside more often. And and so, so I was good. I was ready to sign on three years. And so we we go into court. And he says, you know what? Hey, let me go try one more time. I'm going to go talk to the DA and the judge. And so he goes back there and uh, he's gone maybe 20 minutes. And then he comes walking out. He's got this huge smile on his face. Right. And I was thinking like, man, something good's happened. <laughs> and so he comes up to me and he goes, check us out. Right. And actually, technically, they, they, they signed me to, he goes, we can get you nine months in county. Now, I, I ended up signing on a little more time in lieu of some fees and fines because I had a ton of those. So I could actually do jail time in lieu of some of those. So I did sign a little bit more on the nine, but but nine months, six months in a rehab, uh, three years probation. Now, the only way the DA would agree to it was um, I did have to sign on a seven-year prison term, right? And the prison term was stayed, so they call it like an ESS, an executed suspended sentence. So I'm technically, I'm signing to seven years in prison um, and I don't have to do it as long as I stay out of trouble. So if you screw up again, you're going for seven. Seven years. Yep. And and technically it's just an automatic because I'm actually signing to it. So they, it would literally, I'd go back in front of the judge. They'd say, all right, we're going to, we're going to institute your sentence and they'd send me upstate, you know? So I had that, you know, I definitely had that. Um, but that to me was a miracle. I mean, it really was because uh, with everything that I got busted with, it was, I mean, it's a miracle. So and, now, uh, you know, a lot of people when they get out of prison or get out of rehab, um, they go back, you know, like in the program, they talk about you have to start staying away from people, places and things. Mm -hmm. So what did you have to do when you got out? when you had to realize why I, you know, cause they say if you, if you hang out long enough in a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. So yeah. what did you do? So you didn't go back to people, places and things. So I got out of, when I got out of custody, I went straight into um, her a program, Nancy Clark. She, she has a program. Um, and so I got, I got into, into her program. Um, and it was really easy in the beginning you know, I, I was excited. I'm out of custody. I got all this gratitude, you know, I can open a refrigerator and grab my own soda and go to the bathroom without people watching me, you know, so I had all this, you know, gratitude that I was out and things were good. And, and, uh, and I had a, like a light at the end of the tunnel thing, you know, I saw, wait a minute, maybe I can do this. I still didn't know what I wanted to do though. You know, I just had this, I mean, you know, I fell into that mentality of who's going to hire me, you know, what job can I get? I got, you know, I'm a six time convicted felon and, um, you know, who, who's going to end up hiring me. And so I, I, uh, I fell into that a little bit. Um, but I, I really stuck close to, um, you know, doing, and I did, and I did the 12 step program. I really did this time for the first time ever. I, I, you know, I got a sponsor. I was working the steps that became a foundation for me. Um, you know, and I felt like I had the support, um, you know, and, and, it, you know, things, things seem very good. Now I, 
I remember I did hit one point and I, this is what I tell like clients that I work with all the time is that you need to stay as far away from it as possible because you may hit a point, right? Where you are dead set on getting high. I'm ready to do it. You hop in the car, you start driving. And if you're far enough away, maybe you can talk yourself out of it. And that actually happened to me one time. I was so ready to, to uh, probably been, because I actually did six months in the residential and then I actually stayed another six months in her sober living um, also. And I think I was at that stage of the sober living. Um, I had a full-time job. I was, I was a telemarketer. <laughs> not, a, not a job I recommend, but it was, it was great. I was a good manipulator. I used all of my talents of when I was getting high and now I used them all when I was sober to sell things to people of things that they don't really need. <laughs> And, uh, and so I, um, but I had a day where I was, I was ready. I was like, you know what? I'm, I just want to get high and, uh, hopped in my car and I was probably about halfway to the guy's house that I was heading to where I literally just stopped. And I said, what am I doing? You know? And I, and the, and at that point in time, you know, my book pain, failure and misery are the stepping stones to success. Pain was a pain. The pain concept was what sort of stopped me, you know, because, you know, early on, and this is sort of what happens with everybody, anybody that first comes into recovery, they're motivated by moving away from pain, right? You get arrested or your family's going to leave you. Your parents are going to kick you out of the house. Something painful that's happened that's causing you to, um, you know, get clean and sober. Now, as we know, that pain will never last. Eventually, you know, I won't have time over my, my head. You know, my parents trust me again. Everything's good. Um, and so that pain goes away, right? And so if that's the only pain you have, or if that's the only motivation that you have, you're probably going to get loaded. Um, and so we do have to end up changing that. The way we change it is we, mo we move towards motivating ourselves towards moving moving towards something good or something better in our life, goals, dreams, a vision, something we're reaching towards. And those are the things that I realized um, were going to help me. Now, at that point in time, though, I wasn't there yet. And so I did the concept and the idea of, wait a minute, I'm going to get high to go to prison for seven years. That's insane. And so I think that was at the, that point that stopped me and I was able to talk myself out of it. Um, and, but then things started changing for me, you know, because, um, I had a counselor and I was talking to him about that idea, you know, who's going to hire me. We're going to get a job that like a legitimate good job outside of telemarketing. <laughs> and so he, he looks at me and he goes, you know, what? what if you worked in this field? And he's like, you're a good communicator. You, uh, you know, you're, I think you would do well in this field. And so that was sort of where this idea came about for me to, to get into this field. And, um, and so at one point in time, I was decided to go to school. My life became very busy. I was still working full time. I was going to school three quarter time and um, I was still doing some treatment. Um, and so life was very, very busy for me. Um, but that's when things really started to change for me because, you know, I started for the first time in my life, I had something I was reaching for. Now, how many, how long do you, how long have you been clean now? 
Well, almost seven years now. Now I do have a, there's a whole nother story behind that. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, 2000 and so it was January 3rd, 2002 that I had my last arrest. Right. And so I, I technically should have almost 20 years, right. Coming up. Well, I, I did relapse. I had, um, 2013, I had, um, 11 years. And I made some very bad decisions. Um, I owned a program at that time. It was called Serenity Lab Counseling. And this goes to, you know, a lot of people have always asked that question, you know, how can you have that much time and then go to use? And, uh, you know, how does that work? And so, you know, I, and I came up with an answer to it for me. I lost my passion. And I lost my passion because, um, I owned a program and at this point in time, you know, I had been a live-in house manager. I'd been a counselor. I'd been program director. I'd been clinical director, executive director. I mean, all this, all this, these things in this field. And I knew the field and I knew what we taught and I knew everything. And I knew, you know, all about recovery. And you'd think like, wow, that's crazy. You should have all the answers, right? And, you know, we, we can lose focus and we can, and for me, it was dangerous when I lost my passion. And so I ended up getting in a huge argument with my business partner. Uh, I left the program that I had worked so hard. We did alternative sentencing. Uh, we were very um, good. We, we were very effective. We helped a lot of people. And I just could not stand my business partner. Um, and he was kind of the money guy. I was the knowledge guy. And so I kind of felt like he was going in a different direction. And so I left. And, uh, and I actually ended up working for Nancy Clark. Um, now, the big difference being finances. Obviously, owning a program, you're getting paid a certain amount. And then I went to Nancy, um, and I got paid horrible. So finances became a big struggle for a bit. Um, and, uh, and I just lost my passion. And I kept thinking, like, damn, I need to make some money. How can I make some money? Of course, my mind is going to go, why don't you sell dope, right? Make some money. And, uh, and, we, uh, and we tried an alternative. I talked to my girlfriend, who is actually my wife now, but I talked to my girlfriend about what we have an extra room. What if we rented out this room, somebody, and they could, uh, you know, they could, you know, pay a portion of our rent. And so we decided to do that. Um, it was somebody that she knew. Um, and, uh, but she also knew this guy used to have a meth problem. And so I had a meeting with him. I was very firm. I said, hey, um, you know what I do? And if I think you're getting high, I'm going to go in your room. I'm going to search your shit and I'm going to throw you, throw you out, right? Uh, I said it a little more firmly with profanity too. <laughs> and, uh, and so things were good in the beginning. Um, and he did probably great for, you know, maybe six months. And, uh, and then I started seeing every sign in the world that something was going on. And I went in his room, I found four glass pipes. Um, I smashed three of them, kept one because I wanted to, when I, when he showed up, I was going to say, Hey, here's this, you know, get out. Right. So I had it in my drawer and, uh, and I forgot about it until I had a dream. I had a dream one night that I got loaded and I got high. 
And it was such a vivid, powerful dream. When I woke up, I could taste it. I could feel it. Um, you know, it just it gave me the chills and, and it, those cravings hit power big. And I didn't talk to my girlfriend. Uh, she went to work and, uh, and I sat there and I just pondered it. I thought, man, I got a pipe sitting right here in the drawer. And um, I battled with myself for like 30 minutes before I decided to hit it. I mean, it was, it was the craziest thing. You know, I'm walking back and forth. I call it uh, Beelzebub and Benefactor. <laughs> you know, the battle between good and evil within us all. And, uh, and it, it literally, you know, hey, wait a minute, you can do one hit. You can, ah, there's no way I can do a hit, you know. Yeah, you can just take, you can just do one. Not, come on, man, you can do it. Not a big deal. You can handle it. You got all this time clean. You're older. You're smarter. You know, then my other side is going, dude, that's crazy. You know, I mean, and I, I kind of went on this for like 30 minutes and, uh, and then just decided, you know what, I'm going to take a hit. And that's, uh, that's when then you're off to the races. Yep. And I mean, and again, I, you know, prior to that hit, you know, I am, I have integrity. I will, I will never steal from you. I will be honest with you. I will, do anything to help you. I'll take the shirt off my back to, you know, if you need it. I mean, I will do anything for you. And uh, you take, I take that one hit. I will rob from you. I will steal from you. And I will do anything that I need to do. I don't care about you anymore. Um, and again, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, it is literally that, you know. Now, how long did it take you to get out of this slump? I was on, I was six months, which was a miracle. Um, and this was actually the first time I got clean and sober without getting arrested. Um, and I don't, and I even still think back that, you know, you, you can almost ask like, well, how did you do it? You know, and I don't have a great answer to it. Um, because I was so high. I was, um, you know, my, my, Long, long story. I'm not going to tell the story about my girlfriend because that's her story to tell. But, <laughs> but um, you know, she she uh, she was moving basically, and so you know, she was like, "I'm done with this because I disappear." You know, I'm off living in motels and just doing whatever I'm doing. Um, you know, she's freaking out. She thinks I'm going to die, and so she kind of does the Al-Anon concept of detachment, and it's like I'm going to move right. Um, and there was something in me. I mean, I loved her. But again, it, you know, how much, do, how much do you love somebody when you're in that state of mind of dependency? How much love can, can your, you know, I, I, I did a, I did a podcast recently and I was really pondering this idea, right? That, you know, we talk about feelings, right? Is love a feeling? Well, it can't be a feeling, Right or an emotion because those come and go, they change. Right. And so is love that, do you have that ability so easily to remove that? I think there's something more to it. Right. And they did some scans. This to me was very interesting, but they did some scans and actually found that the, um, that emotion or the, the, they, it's more of a drive, right. And they actually found through scans that that part of the brain actually comes from, from the brainstem, right? Or near further back in the brain, which is interesting because that's the same part of the brain where breathing, involuntary functions come from, right? So this may be why, you know, 
people do some of the craziest, oddest things for love, right? Because mm -hmm. love brings about other feelings, right? There's jealousy, rage, anger, all these things within love, right? But that love isn't so easy to get rid of. So it can't be as simple as that. Yep. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense to me. So now talk to us about, you know, what you're doing today and talk to us about your brand new book. Oh, my brand new book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so I am a teacher at a, a school, a uh, private school or a nonprofit new creation college in, uh, Rancho Cucamonga in California. Um, and I teach people that are working to become substance abuse counselors. This is exciting to me because um, um, there's a lot of incompetent counselors out there. And I've seen this all throughout the years. And to have the opportunity to be able to teach people um, and to help open up people's minds is very important. Um, and so this is very exciting. So it's a, um, it's a very condensed program. It's six months. Um, and we go through a lot of information uh, within that six months. And uh, so, I, so that's one thing I do. I also am a counselor. Um, I, uh, do, I, do a, I do help out a little bit down there with a couple of groups for their outpatient, um, which is also a lot of fun to me. Um, I like to stay connected with that. And, uh, and then I do a podcast called High Wall Clean. I love it. And it was an honor to be able to hang out with you. Uh, I think it's one of the, like I said, it's my top three podcasts that I listen to every episode that's available. Yeah. Hi, Wall Clean. I love it because, you know, when I, it's a, it's, you know, it's something that really came to me, you know, um, with clients, you know, clients are like, oh, life's going to suck. Life's going to be boring. And I always thought like, why? And I, and I, it dawned on me, this was way back, but it kind of dawned on me that, wait a minute you know, highness doesn't come from drugs. Highness comes from us. All drugs do is they manipulate our chemicals. So if I can get in highness, if I can find ways to get high without drugs, then highness will last the rest of my life. So if you only, if you want to stay high the rest of your life, you got to do it clean and sober. And, uh, and so, and that's, and that's really what I found in life. I mean, I get high every day. I get high. I'm, I'm freaking high right now with you, man. <laughs> so now how do we find your book how do we find your podcast yeah so my podcast highwallclean.org um, and that website again highwallclean.org that website will uh, has all the links to um, you know all the audio uh, locations uh, everything um, you know on YouTube and uh and my book can also be found on uh, on my, you know, there's links from my website. Um, it's on pretty much anywhere you can buy a book. Uh, Pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. Um, and uh, yeah, and you see, you brought up this new, the new book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yes, I am, you know, one of my, again, one of my fights is to, um, you know, fight the stigma of substance abuse. And I haven't really titled my book yet, the new one, um, but it's going to be re revolving around stop seeing with your eyes. Okay. And um, because, you know, what we see is not always what is real. Um, and it's based on the premise, you know, of like, we don't describe the world we see, we see the world we describe. 
And so, you know, your mind, your mentality, what you're thinking, all that stuff will alter your perception of stuff. And, um, and so it's really about, to me, very important if we start living within facts, factual information. And it's really interesting how I'm going with the book um, because, you know, I, I really thought heavily on this. You know, here's an example. Like, you know, you see a, you see a homeless person on the street, right? And, you know, what's your typical thought? Oh, dirty, smelly, you know, um, you know, waste of society. You know, people, people think just, you know, odd things. Why don't they just get a job, you know, and this and that. But the reality, you don't know their story. What is their story? You know, and that's something that I think people don't really think about. You know, they got a story and we don't know what it is. Yep. um, Everybody has a story. And that's why I think I love why I do what I do, because everybody has a story. And I believe, you know, everybody's, you know, story needs to be told. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So now 100 percent. I, you know, people have and that's what I love about, you know, my podcast. I loved having you on there. Um, you know, I've had some great guests on there and, um, and, you know, and then I'm, I'm very excited again about this, this radio show I'll be doing. Um, this is something that'll be kind of unique. Be doing it down in a studio. Are you going to be doing interviews and stuff like that? Well, it's uh, so I got a co-host, uh, Paxton Dickerson, you know, I've heard the name. Yeah. He could be good on your show too. Um, he's, he's a great guy. He's got a great story. Um, but um, yeah, he's going to be my co-host on it. And we're going to do a lot of different things. You know, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, um, and we want to get people to, to call in. You know, we really want people to participate. Um, and, um, and we may do some interviews, but we really want to, um, you know, hopefully we can get um, our listeners to, you know, be able to, you know, call in and participate and talk about what we're talking about. Um, well, you know, I'll promote it. You know, you know, I have no problem promoting my friends and what they're doing. So I'll, I'll promote the heck out of it. That would be fantastic, man. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this. You know, I love doing new things. <laughs> yeah. So my um, last question that I ask everybody, um, cause I ask a thousand people and I get a thousand different answers. You know, mm-hmm. we still live in a crazy world, you know, we still live in COVID um, a lot of p- people here in New Jersey, you know, they lost jobs. So they're driving Uber, DoorDash, just to put food into the kid's mouth. And um, got a lot of grandparents that are homeschooling kids. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're pretty much never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody's out there listening to us right now that they're struggling, they're they can't get rid of the obsession. What is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get the help and to live the life that God has for them? You know, honestly, to, uh, to reach out and ask for help, you know, um, is, is probably one of the greatest things that people can do. You know, I thought about this a lot. I, you know, it's like, Maybe I can take my problems and I can hand them over to somebody to help me, you know, so I don't have to do this alone. Um, and I think that's really the key to this, you know, is that and, th- and this is really why for me and I know you feel this way, too. You know, that the coolest thing about what we do is, you know, we're joining, we're creating networks, you know, 
We're creating, we're, we're working to show the world that the problems that you have are not unique. You know, that the problems you have, people have, have gone through also. And everybody that comes on my, my show, you know, is always, you know, and, and you, you as well, you know, is, is putting your hand out and saying, Hey, if you have a problem, contact me, please contact me, you know, um, just talk, you know, the, and we always tell people too, they're like, I'm ready to get loaded, you know? And, uh, wait, wait, just before you do that, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. You can still get loaded, you know, but let's, let's just talk about it first, you know? And, uh, you know, and it does take courage, you know? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you guys, you know, anybody can find my, you can even find my number, you know, um, 909-973-7273. I'm always available. Well, you may call it three in the morning. I may not answer, but <laughs> for the most part, I'm always available. Um, you know, my email address is E McCoy, E M C C O Y at highwallclean.org. Or I also have a recovery ecosystem at gmail.com. Um, you can find me, you know, on Facebook, um, you know, any, any, you know, and, and I know some people that, you know, maybe nervous or scared to reach out, reach out or so, just do it the writing. Sometimes it's easier for people just to type something first. And, uh, but, you know, I'm definitely here. People need help and just need to talk, you know, um, I'm here for you. I love it, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, if you've got anything out of this, please leave a comment for Eric on on our uh, on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, share this with somebody because, you know, what we do this, it's all free. We don't charge. We don't make any money off of this is just helping to save lives mm -hmm. and be saved like we were saved because there was somebody there to stand in the gap for us. So, Eric, brother, I just want to say thank you. This is going to go out. I, I don't know. It's going to be a while because I'm starting with a new production company and they're going to be upgrading my graphics production. So mm -hmm. it's, it'll take a while, but it's going to go out. And I just want to say I'm grateful for you and thank you for being in my inner circle, brother. You too, man. I, and I really, um, you know, you got such a great story too, you know, and I really appreciate, um, you know, what you do. And, and I love the fact that, you know, you say too, that, you know, again, you know, I don't get paid for doing, doing this stuff, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, I, you know, it's just something that I want to, um, you know, give to people again, if we can just help one, then it's been worth it. Um, and what do they say in the program that we cannot keep what we cannot freely give away? Nope. Absolutely. All right. I love you, brother. Have an love amazing you. week. Love you too, man. All Stay right. High. Take care. Stay high, brother. Absolutely. You too, man. <laughs> Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, this gentleman that we're going to talk to, I've admired from afar for a long time. And then we finally got together on his podcast, High While Clean. Had such a great time. I had them have him on here. You guys are going to love this guy. He's an author. He's a game changer. He's a thought leader. My brother, Eric McCoy. What's up, my brother? How you doing, man? Uh, you know what? Life is so good. Uh, you know, if life was any better, I would be twins. <laughs> yeah, things are great, man. I feel I feel the same. So what's going on? What's new? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm, you know, doing a lot of the same stuff, doing my podcast, but I actually got something really cool is, uh, I'm going to be starting a show on LA talk radio, uh, which is an internet radio, uh, week from Thursday. It'll be every Saturday or every Thursday night at 7 PM. 
Pacific wow. Standard Time. Yeah. I'm excited, bro. I can't wait. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. That's amazing. So a lot of people don't know you. Um, like I said, they, your podcast is in my top three podcasts that I listen to. Every episode comes out. You're in my top three. That's how much I love it and I enjoy it. Because you know I have a passion for um, recovery and and people coming back from different stuff. So tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? Uh, where were you raised and what kind of little boy was little Eric? <laughs> well, I, uh, well, I was born in Montebello, Southern California. And, you know, we moved a lot. I think that was kind of a big factor for me because uh, friends seemed to just come and go. You know, and that was sort of a, you know, you get you get a lot of friends. And then my dad's up and moving. We moved to Northern California uh when i was in fourth grade we stayed there a year then we moved to pennsylvania we were in pennsylvania a year and a half uh then we moved back to northern california and uh and then we stayed there until uh, my sophomore year then we moved back to southern california so you know friends came and came and went i didn't really have a lot of faith that you know the people that you know, I got, I got close to, and so I kind of stopped getting close to people. Um, so what was the family dynamic like? You know, it was one of those where, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom. And so she was around all the time. <laughs> and my dad was, uh, was very busy. I mean, we didn't live, you know, we didn't live poor. My dad was the uh, vice president of bank of America. Um, you know, so we, it's not like we went without, and, but I never cared about any of that stuff. You know, I always saw my dad as being, you know, it was all about kind of materialism and I never cared about any of that. All I wanted to do was feel good. I think I dealt with depression, you know, not undiagnosed when I was a kid and, uh, just, um, and I became a very troubled kid, <laughs> Um, I got arrested four times before I turned 18. Um, the second time, um, I had a case pending. I mean, it was bad. I, and it, and it all revolved around alcohol at that point. Um, you know, we'd get really, really drunk and then we'd do something very stupid. And one of those was we broke into the high school I was at and we trashed the place. Um, and, uh, and so I got um, kind of ratted out on that, and I got arrested. So that one was well-deserved. That was a well-deserved one. Oh, 100%. And the second one was more of a fun thing, but again, became very problematic. Um, my, uh, I had a friend of mine. We went into Danville. That's actually where we lived. Um, we went in Northern California, went to Danville, into the town. And there was a area that was on const in construction, uh, we decided to hotwire one of the tractors and drove around and kind of jumped things. And then I was like, oh, man, here's another tractor over here. Why don't we have wars with it? <laughs> and so I actually uh, we created so much commotion uh, that I hopped off the tractor. I was walking down to the other one. And a police drives right by me. Um, I ran into the library. They I saw them, you know, kind of put him in the back of the car and came to realize that they were just driving around looking for me. And so I ended up, they ended up catching me. Um, 
So what was it like, you know, because I, you know, I've been to California a couple of times, very beautiful. And then you get to Allentown, Pennsylvania. That had to be like a total culture shock. <laughs> a major, major. Uh, it, I mean, it was so, so different. Um, you know, obviously you get, you get the weather change, you know, I mean, we, you know, California here, we, we have one normal weather, which is just sunny and, <laughs> and, uh, you get out there and of course you've got seasons, you know, and, uh, you know, and at that age, I was 10 years old, um, at the time. And, you know, I, I mean, I liked it. It was, uh, you know, but my parents ended up putting me in this, this like Catholic school, uh, which I did not appreciate, you know, kind of rebelled, um, decided to learn how to ski, you know, something. And, and so we went skiing. Um, and by the end of the day, I'd torn all the ligaments in my left knee. <laughs> and so I had to have surgery and wore a cast for what seemed like forever. Um, and it was, you know, it was really interesting. I, you know, California, you know, doesn't have, I mean, it has a lot of stuff here, but there was the unique things, you know, about Pennsylvania. You got the Amish, you know, which obviously was very, um, was unique compared to what I knew. Um, I remember going to this uh, fair. It was like a festival that they had. And it was a festival where I'm 10 years old. My dad always talks about this too. I was 10 years old and they slaughter an animal, you know, right in front of you. You know, there was, it was a cow or it was a giant pig or something you know they go and they shoot it in the head they drag it in they <laughs> you know and of course i'm like wow this is really cool you know they even do a mock hanging <laughs> wow and uh i know times have changed i don't think they do that anymore but that's um, <laughs> that'll be whole, part of the whole cult, cancel culture right there yeah 100 percent. it was it was definitely unique um, now talk to us you know because like i had my first drink at the age of 12 and the moment I had a drink, my face lit up and I got all red and I, that, I was hooked and I was off to the races. And within a year, I was a full-blown alcoholic. So take us back to the time when you had your first drink. What was that like? Oh, it was horrific. Um, you know, a friend, a friend of mine, we decided, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's try some booze and and so, you know, my parents, my parents never really dealt with any kind of alcohol or drug problems at all, but they had, you know, like a little bar and they had, you know, alcohol in it. And so I grabbed a bottle of vodka um, and took it, took it to my friend's house. And I remember we kind of, I remember pouring it, you know, I probably poured like, you know, half a cup or something and I just downed it. Right. And, uh, and, you know, you, I kind of felt like a little warm, but I didn't really feel what I was looking for. And so I did it again. Um, and and I, I we got done. And I remember I was at a Christian high school in Northern California. And I remember walking over to the school. Oh, I felt great, you know, nice buzz. And, and then we get to the classroom and I went in, we sit, and of course, the first thing we do in class, in our first class, is we, they do a prayer, you know, <laughs> and I remember, I remember like sitting down, and my, and I, my prayer was so different, you know, it was literally like one of those, please God, 
I, you know, I felt so bad at, at that point in time. And uh, it was more of like, please, God, I'll never do this again if you, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and my teacher looks at me and I was literally just pure white. Um, and I ran out of the room and just puked everywhere. And they sent me home. And, but they, they had no idea I drank. So I didn't really get busted. They just sent me home thinking I was sick, uh, which I was. But, you know, it was, just, it was a different kind of sick than they were thinking. <laughs> no. You know, as you became an adult, was it something that you hid or was it something that was just, it is what it is and I'm, I'm going to party like a rock star like I did? Well, it was, you know, for me, when I hit, um, I ran away um, a couple of times. And when I was um, literally at probably on my 18th birthday, um, I, I took off, um, went and stayed at these these people's house kind of friends of mine's house and uh and then i had an experience that literally changed everything for me we went to a grateful dead concert and, oh god and it was in las vegas um and so we literally packed up and went to las vegas and i mean i had the most amazing it was fun i mean there was you know of course and and what was ironic was the first dead show I went to, I was, I was clean and sober because I went through my first rehab when I was 16. So I had, I mean, you know, after that second arrest, I was given the opportunity of two years in California Youth Authority, you know, juvenile prison or go to 30 days in a rehab and, you know, 30 days in rehab sounded better. <laughs> so I went and did that. So I, I had a lot of experience in and out, um, you know, relapsing numerous times, you know, before I turned 18. But even that first dead show I went to, I stayed clean. I didn't do anything. Um, and it was an interesting, the dead shows actually had uh, uh, AA meetings. So during they'd have an intermission um, and there would be an AA meeting um, that people would have. And so there was obviously a group of people that were clean and sober. Uh, they were called wharf rats. That was what Jerry called people when they were, when he was clean and sober, he was a wharf rat. <laughs> and uh, so that, that first show I went to, um, that was the only show I think I had ever been to after that clean and sober, but it changed everything for me. I mean, I, I got so involved in that, you know, left, took, I mean, literally had no money in my pocket, bumming, bumming money at gas stations, eating food that we could gather at churches, um, you know, as a church, especially back then, you know, always had food. And so, you know, you could go into a church, they'd give you food. Um, we'd always end up up in uh, Cougar Hot Springs, Oregon, which there was like a hippie commune up there. Um, and I got so um, involved in that. They'd have rainbow gatherings. Like I remember one in Shasta Mountains. And and it's funny, you know, I, like I think about those days and it was, it was a lot of fun, you know. I mean, you can obviously say that. And I, and I wasn't really during those days, I wasn't doing what became my drug of choice. Um, um, wasn't really drinking a lot of LSD, a lot of hallucinogens, a lot of marijuana, you know, at that point in time. Um, and of course you're doing those things and you don't think it's a problem. I mean, you know, you can't really get addicted to LSD because it's such a minute amount that you're taking. Uh, but it could definitely blow your mind if you if you do it do it the wrong way with the wrong people. A hundred percent. I mean, it it definitely, um, you know. And of course, I, I I teach at a school, and so I teach all the you know the possibilities of things that can happen. But oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and honestly, I I've seen people lose their mind, and I don't know if they ever came back. You know, because um, that was my drug of choice in the military. So, yeah. and the weird thing about when you're doing stuff like that is you can't get any more drunk. 
no matter how hard you try. <laughs> Once you're high on acid, you can't get any more plastered than you already are. <laughs> now, um, so, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you first start out, it's having a good time. And then it gets much it, for some people, not everybody, you know, because I can only talk about, you know, myself. Um, it can get much darker. Yeah. To where all of a sudden, you know, we're it used to be on Friday nights, we're hanging out or talking with our friends, partying, and now it's Sunday night and we're sitting in our room in our apartment drinking by ourselves. It the party stops, but the you know, we we keep going. So, what happened to you? What was your, as they say, you know, your come to Jesus moment? Well, uh, so methamphetamine, be, you know, was ultimately became my drug of choice. That was my literal destroyer in life, you know. Um, and it's it's interesting when I think back, you know, I wrote this book, you know, Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. And there was a lot of it that was really challenging to write because of remembering time frames. You know, when did this happen? When did this yeah. even happen first, you know? And, you know, so all, through all of those years, you know, like after I turned 18, you know, I, I mean, yes, I was doing the dead stuff and then I was doing, then there was a break and, and I ended up in Chico, California. That's where alcohol became just the most insane, horrific thing for me. Um, you know, when I do things that give me pleasure and enjoyment, I, I can't do little, you know, it's like, oh, this feels really good. So if I do more, it must feel better. And then, wow, damn, let's do even more, you know, because you're going to feel better. And that was always the way I did it. And I um, think because, you know, we have that um, addictive personality. Yes. You know, like you're saying, wait a minute, if my car does 60, what can it do at 70? Right. Then seven, you're like, it's got to hit 90. Well, let's see what happens when it hits 90 and eventually you crash. Oh, yeah. 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 So alcohol was, was, I mean, I was literally in Chico when I was there. I don't even, and again, I don't even remember how long I was there, but um, I had, I mean, literally drank every night. You know, Chico was like the number two party school in the country that Chico State University. Now I was not going to Chico State. <laughs> My brother was. And, uh, and so, I mean, you could literally find a keg party in any car apartment complex, any night of the week there. And I found them all, you know, and I was just literally drunk all the time that I was literally awake. And so that, that was that premise. And then it got so bad there that I was like, okay, I got to go. I got to leave. And so I went back to Southern California and, uh, and then that's when I really got on meth. Um, and when I do methamphetamine, everything changes about me. I kind of write about this in my book. I really try to describe it as best I can for people to understand that haven't been through it because I put meth in my body and everything, my integrity, my, my, uh, goes away. I mean, everything about me goes away. You know, I become a thief. I steal. I break into houses. I'm committing, you know, insurance or in, uh, committing um, credit card fraud, you know, check fraud, everything. Everything revolves around I need to just make sure that I have money to get more. I can't really get a job because, um, you know, obviously I got all these other things I got to do. You always have a lot to do, you know, <laughs> and so I had all these things to do. And uh, and that becomes my life. And And then you know, it, and everything that what ended up happening was, um, you know, I'd met this, we met this couple one of the times up in, in uh, Oregon. They'd never been to California. It was me and my best friend. And we and were like, hey, cool. Why don't you come down with us? So they come down and uh, they'd never done meth. So I went and bought, you know, some meth and went back and we started doing it. Um, 
and you know some people get paranoid some people you know he ended up the boyfriend ended up getting very jealous thought like my dealer was sleeping with his girlfriend it was actually me sleeping with his girlfriend um and uh and they ended up getting in this huge fight um the girl ends up deciding to hey i'm gonna go back because they were from maryland and so she ends up going back to maryland we stayed in touch i was like okay this is a massive problem i need to get out there so i so i flew out there and um and then you know i was thinking i'm like going well shit. so i mean mess my problem you know heroin what, what's wrong with some heroin let's do some heroin you know let's smoke some crack and uh and so again once again you know i once i do things things overindulge we got heavily into ecstasy for a while uh, of course when with ecstasy and the we were doing the you know really powerful stuff that really drives your sex interest and uh i ended up getting her pregnant and so and this was actually my second kid i sort of kind of forgot one part of the story but when i was uh, 16 i got a girl pregnant um and so at the age of 17 my first child was born <laughs> um and i was a horrible father because you know everything that i was doing um i i couldn't obviously take care of a kid so i was one of those you know and, and i it you know i hate to say it but one of those non-existent fathers you know um and uh and then i had she got pregnant we decided to go back to california because we were doing all these drugs out in maryland and we're like oh let's go back to california and so we come back i jump right back on meth she didn't you know she actually stayed off for her entire pregnancy i was of no no assistance at all um, doing back doing everything that i do again once i put meth in my body dr jekyll and mr hyde i mean it's literally that you know um and then coming up to the point where he was my son was going to be born she decided she's like i got to get back to maryland i got to get away from this stuff and so i was like you know what i do too let's go and that was like my escape you know a, ge a geographic that was your solution right <laughs> now you know like i tell a lot of people you know because like i've been clean now and i just hit 30 32 years um and but i tell people you know like, so i hear a lot of people Oh, well, you know, I'm going to move to wherever. And I'm like, bro, wherever you go, you take you with you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all it is. Like you said, it's a geographical change. Yep. You're just still bringing you and, you know, you're bringing all your bad habits and everything with you. So not yep. only are you destroying people in, say, California, now you go to Maryland, you're going to be destroying more people. Uh, absolutely and i um and that and that, yeah i definitely brought myself <laughs> and so and then so i ended up going back i ended up going to maryland um and uh i tried to keep it together you know i really tried to do the right thing my son was going to be born um and i got a job and i got a job um, with a paint company which was a very new experience to me and i kind of had to learn i learned quick um i ended up moving up very quickly to the foreman of the company and uh, and so things were you know i was uh, kind of just dibbling, dibbling. I was trying to stick with something like weed, you know, or something. I didn't want to, you know, I, I always wanted to have some form of altered consciousness, you know, and, you know, weed, okay, you know, I can, I can handle that a little bit. And so, you know, I kind of stuck with that. And, and, uh, and then me and this girl ended up getting in large fights. It was horrible because, you know, she was, <laughs> she was uh, extremely lazy and she had a job. I had a job. We had one car. I had to wake up, you know, get my son already, uh, feed him and everything, fighting with her to get out of bed because she just would not get out of bed. And it's like day after day after day. 
And so eventually I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And so I left. Um, so I moved into an apartment. I got an apartment and um, um, that that went for a little bit. And then I went back and I was like smoking crack again. And I hated crack. I could not stand it. But actually, I hated that come down the feel and stuff. But I got heavily into that. And then, you know, my brain's changing again. And it's like, oh, well, you know, Maryland's a problem. So let me go back to California. And this was in 1990. 1999, 98 or 99, uh, went back to California, jumped back on meth. Um, and I got a job this time at, at Kinko's graveyard. Perfect for a tweaker. Right. And so I was doing, I was doing that. Um, and this girl that we were hanging out with, um, she, he was on probation. We actually had no idea she was on probation, but she was on probation. And one night she goes home and her probation officer shows up. Um, they find drugs on her. They find, you know, a bat under the bed. Um, her boyfriend's on parole. And so they both got violated. And uh, and so they ended up um, cutting some deal, I guess, that uh, if they turn someone over, that they'll assist her. And so she basically told them that we were huge drug dealers and that we had a whole arsenal of weapons. I mean, it was absolutely insane. Um, and so one day I was sitting in the apartment, loud bang on the door, Orange County Sheriff's, um, and I'm the only one in there and my roommates weren't there. They had just left. And so, um, and I'm thinking like, sure, where's my dope? And I only, and I only had a tiny bit. So they ended up coming in. They, they literally, uh, did not find anything that the search warrant said they were going to find, you know, we didn't have a single gun. Um, and so we did, they did find a little dope. We ended up getting a possession charge and uh, I ended up taking, you know, California has this prop 36. So I ended up taking that and I, and I literally went in front of the judge. I remember going in front of the judge and, and she's like, um, you know, well, you have the opportunity to prop 36. And I, I literally looked at her and I said, you know what, if you guys give me prop 36, you might as well lock me up now because I am, I, I'm, I'm high now. You know, I said, I can't get off it. And so she, she tells me that, uh, you know what, we'll come back in 30 days, find a rehab, get into rehab. And so I found a place and I ended up doing six months in a, in a rehab in lieu of that, uh, prop 36. And, um, now California has a three strikes and rule you're out, right? Well, that's for violent offenses. Okay. And so, yeah. And that was, you know, and again, going back to, to the whole, like for me, the separation of substances, right. You know, that uh, mess my problem. What's wrong with drinking? There's nothing wrong with smoking weed. And I believe that. And, and so I, you know, when I'm in this 30 day residential part of the program, this guy shows up, he's got weed, we're rolling joints, we're smoking <laughs> in residential, right? And again, I don't have a problem, but you know, I'm, we're smoking this in the residential. He ends up getting busted. He gets thrown out. Um, they didn't catch me. And so um, I finished that 30 days. Then I had to do five months of like sober living outpatient. So I had to stay in one of their houses, sober living, follow other rules. And, uh, and I drank through most of that time. Um, you know, I'd wake up at 10 in the morning, uh, drink, they breathalyze this every night. I figured out the whole game. I could, I figured out a way that I was, I'd stop at a certain time, be able to breathalyze it, which proved to me that, Hey, I don't have a problem, right? I could stop blows, blow zeros. I'm good. You know, I'm drinking at 10 in the morning. I don't have a problem. Right. <laughs> and so, um, 
so I ended up, you know, I, I played the game and I got through that, that five months. My counselor was like, man, you're going to do great. You're doing wonderful. You know, I got, you know, I don't even have a day sober. And, uh, and so I decided that, you know what, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go back to Maryland. <laughs> so I ended up contacting my uh, old boss, went back to Maryland. I think I was out there seven months and tried to smoke crack again and got all crazy, came back to California. And this is where things get absolutely nuts. So I um, got back on meth, um, met this girl uh, who showed up at, at this guy's house that we were at, showed up with a ton of meth, hanging out for probably an hour and a half. Then I realized that she was seven months pregnant. Um, and of course, once again, I put meth in my body, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I get right back into, you know, commercial burglaries, residential burglaries, you know, all the stuff. Right. And, um, um, and one night I was out, um, I'd broken into a place that was similar to a Home Depot. They had the big garden area and stuff. And, and, uh, I started frequenting this place like one, you know, maybe every month and a half, two months because I, I'd find the shack and inside the shack, they had all this paperwork with the paperwork. They had credit card numbers, IDs, numbers. I mean, everything, you know, that, that the, uh, you know, individual would love who's into ID identification theft. And so, you know, I was able to make, make IDs with that at their addresses. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was insane. And so I did that and, and it was a little, and I, I still can't figure this out, but it was literally like every month and a half, maybe two months. There wasn't really a set date that I would show up. But at one point in time, I go down there, uh, you know, bust into the gate, get inside. I go down to that little shack. I open the door, I'm inside. And then all of a sudden I, I see this flashlight on the roof, you know, and way up on the roof. Um, and I, I look up and, and I kind of turn around and I, I could hear, you know, Orange County Sheriff's freeze right? and freezing was not what I wanted to do. And so I ran and, one, you know, obviously if one sheriff's there, you know, the common sense would say there would be a bunch more. Uh, but common sense didn't really play into my head at the time. And so I come running out out of it and there's like 10, 12 sheriffs right there. And so I just lay down. Um, so they arrested me, took me in. My girlfriend posted my bail. Um, and so they have this thing in Orange County called the loop. Usually can take anywhere from 18 to 20 hours to finally get housed. I was probably in that loop for uh, 15 to 17 hours. And and uh, and then I literally just got walked out the door. And so she picks me up. And um, and then, of course, the way, you know, the way the court system works, at least here in California, is that if you post bail, your court date set 30 days later. And so I showed up to court. The DA had not filed on my case. And when they don't do that, they have to drop your charges and they exonerated my bail. So at that point in time, no charges pending, nothing against me. Um, after that, that day, um, my girlfriend and I decided to go down to San Diego, um, went down there for the night, drove back. I'm driving up and I get a call from this girl who wants to, uh, uh, you know, buy some meth for me. And so I, so we, my girlfriend and I stopped at Denny's and then we got back in the car and we drove up to the lit place we were going to meet him at, meet her at. And so we, we drove in there. I hop out of the car. I was there literally like, I don't know, maybe like, 10, I mean, 30 seconds. She handed me the money. I handed her the dope. 
jump back in the car, driving back towards the freeway, and a cop pulls up behind me. And uh, and I had literally like probably a, a I don't know maybe close to a quarter pound of meth sitting next to me, and so I kind of had the stash spot that I would you know be able to pull up the cover where the shifter is you know tuck it in there and so i did that very carefully not looking like i was moving too much and once the light turns green and i make a left the cop turns its lights on and uh and my car was just a bust i mean it literally like was we were moving from one hotel to the next um and you know we had i didn't even know what i had in there i mean we had scales and baggies and dope in different places little vials of stuff and and so um, I pull off at the next station, the next stop, um, and he comes up and asks me how much I had to drink. And I said, I, you know what? I don't drink. Um, I hadn't probably had a drink in seven months, which is true. <laughs> and so he goes, all right, well, let me, you know, let me get you out. Let me uh, have you do a sobriety check. And so I get out and I remember this so clearly because this was, this kind of comes to my later part when I look at responsibility taking responsibility not blaming everybody right and that was something that everything started with for me it's everybody else's fault it's not my fault and this is a good example of this because and it, and there is obviously some some legal fault to this on the police's side but if i hadn't been doing what i was doing then i wouldn't be in that position you know but i kind of walked back and he asked if he could search me and i told him no because i really didn't have any idea what i had on me um and so i wasn't on probation parole so they didn't really have any legal right but he goes all right well, i need to pat you down and so he starts patting me down and he takes my cigarettes out of my my front pocket um, which i don't really know how that could have been looking like a weapon but he pulls them out and he's standing behind me and all i hear is ah now i have a reason to search your vehicle and I'm like, what the fuck? And I turn around and he's holding like this bud of weed. Well, I didn't have weed on me, right? And I came to realize later, I mean, I really kind of came to the realization this was sort of a setup because the girl that I had sold to um, had gotten busted like three weeks earlier. And so I'm pretty sure this was a setup. Um, the weed literally was not mine. I mean, I know everybody says that it wasn't mine, you know, <laughs> but I didn't have weed. <laughs> and so uh so you know because now he's got drugs that he found quote unquote found he can search my vehicle and this is where i mean they're pulling stuff out of my car i mean they're finding you know little vials of meth here and there um i did not want him to find that um big stash that i had which he did end up finding um and so obviously i got arrested they charged me with um originally they just charged me with possession i don't even think it was possession for sales but they charged me. They they um, they took us both to jail, and uh, this was a Thursday, and so I ended up uh, passing out. Slept three or four days, um, and or woke up on Sunday, and I thought about my girlfriend. And so I called a friend of mine. And I said, "Hey, is there any way you can come up money with money to post my girlfriend's bail?" And so he was like, "All right, well, let me see how, see what I can do." And I didn't know if it would if it happened, but. Tuesday rolled around and they took me to court. And so we go to court and it, you know, they call it a dry run. I never saw a judge. They took me down there, never saw a judge. They take me back to the jail and they just kicked me loose that night. And, um, you know, I'm thinking like, what the hell? Right. So, um, so they, 
so I contact my girlfriend and, and she ended up, she did get the, the, our friend did end up posting her bail. So she was out. And so, uh, she, you know, they came, pick me up and she goes to court because she had posted bail 30 days later, the DA hadn't filed on her case. They dropped her charges and exonerated her bail. And, you know, I'm thinking like, man, what, <laughs> what's going on here? And, you know, you know, you kind of get in, of course, your drug induced mind that you're just invincible. And so that's, uh, so that was that part. And then, uh, after about a month and a half after that, um, you know, I was doing all my, all my stuff and the girl, and I kind of left this out too, but the girl ended up, uh, my girlfriend, uh, delivered the baby, um, tested positive, baby tested positive and CPS got involved. That was another whole part of the story. Um, and so, um, the baby was living at a foster home and um and so we used to go visit the kid and so this one particular day um she takes off to go visit the kid i said hey i, I got some things to do you always got stuff to do and i'll meet you over there and so i go do whatever i did and then i went over to meet her and uh pulled in there got out of the car went inside visited the kid for however long we visited and then we both decided, hey, we're going to go back to the hotel we were, we were staying at. So we both get in the car or she gets in. I think she got in my car. I got in her car and we took off, uh, drove. We drove. It was next to the toll road, drove down the toll road, got off, went to the parking lot. We're driving in. I'm going to park. And I remember just parking in there and I sat there for a second. I, I remember seeing in my rearview mirror this, this lady mouth. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so... And, and I couldn't, so I turned around and, and next thing you know, I had a gun, gun in my head. Um, and uh, the guy's like, you know, I'm Detective Moy with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. We're the task force. We have a search warrant to search your vehicle. And so, you know, I'd been through this search warrant process before. So I asked for the search warrant. He's like, okay, not now. It just shows me his badge. And, uh, and we need to search your car. And I said, no, this is, you know, you need to have a search warrant if you're declaring that you, you know, you have one to search my car. Oh, we have it. We'll just, you know, and of course they search, at, you know, I don't have any way to uh, fight off all these undercovers. <laughs> and so they search, uh, search car, find dope on me, they found dope on my girlfriend. Uh, then they decided to search my room. They took my whole computer system. They took um, tons of my stuff in the room. And, uh, and then they booked us both on possession. And we'd been faithful customers to a bail company. And so I called the bail bondsman and asked him if um you know he'd post our bail he's like don't worry i got your back and he had posted our bail uh, before we ended up getting housed again and so we get back out we go to court 30 days later the da hadn't filed on the case to drop the charges exonerated our bail and um you realize you're running out of lives at this point right oh oh man <laughs> yeah i i mean and, that, and that's the thing like you know it became a like a catch me if you can kind of scenario. Um, it came the, I know I'm going to, I know I'm going down, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, whatever. And, and, and the reality being is all I'm doing is stacking things up, you know? And, um, and then eventually they did refile in that first case. Um, and uh, I showed up for the arraignment because I wasn't out on active bail. They took me into custody um, I contacted my bail guy um, and uh, he posted my bail before the bus left. And, uh, and so then I kept going to those court cases 
it's not actually really good when you have a judge that looks at you and says, says, you know, you're a danger to society. That's what he told me. And so, and, you know, and I was, um, and, you know, every time I'm in court, I'm high. I, I, I literally meth was a part of my DNA, you know, by this point, um, you know, and I'm, I'm slamming it. I was slamming over an eight ball a day. Um, you know, I weighed 130 pounds. I'm six, you know, I'm like six, four, weighing 130 pounds. Damn. I was emaciated. He's like an uh, AIDS victim. Let's yeah, you know, hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I couldn't eat, you know, I was so like, I, I could take a, a bite of food and it just tastes like chalk, you know, and, uh, I could hardly get anything down. And then they ended up refiling on my second case, um, which was the one in the car situation. Um, and so I had a warrant, but these were in two different courthouses. So they have four courthouses in Orange County. This one was South Court for the first one. The second one was in um, Harbor Court, which is kind of the middle of Orange County. And so they had a search warrant out of there. I actually went to court like three or four times before the judge that I was seeing in South Court picked up on the fact that I had that other warrant. Um, I'd call my, I'd, I'd have somebody go with me every time. And I, and I'd tell them if they take me into custody, call this number, have them post my bail. And after like the third or fourth time, the, the judge, you know, picked up on the warrant, took me back into custody. And, uh, and the girl that, that was with me, um, she, uh, she called the number. And also after the third arrest, another thing I always keep forgetting is that the girl, my girlfriend at the time decided that she's because of you know, going back to that fact that when she was, when she was pregnant, she had no emotional connection with the kid whatsoever with all the meth she was doing, you know, and probably reality being is that she was probably uh, pregnant for a long period of time before she even knew she was pregnant. And there was no emotional connection until she delivered the baby. And once she delivered uh, the baby, she wanted the baby, she wanted the baby back. And so this was and I, again, I was her worst enemy. You know, I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to do anything other than what I'm doing. You know, and uh, uh, we kept, we figured out a way for her to manipulate the drug test. She had to drug, drug test like three times a week and uh, clean every time. You know, figured out method for clean every time. The only thing we could not hide was getting arrested. And so. Hey guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting 
our mission, which is to save lives.